sit comfortably. You can close your eyes or not. We can actually start by listening to sound. Sounds in the room, maybe sounds of traffic, sounds of my voice. Sharon Salzberg is one of, of America's like leading Buddhist meditation teachers. She's taking me through a mindfulness meditation. And bring your attention to the feeling of your body sitting, whatever sensations you discover. Mindfulness is suddenly everywhere. It's basically a meditation technique that promotes awareness of the present moment and its positive effects have been well documented. Studies suggest variously that it relieves stress, promotes recovery from illness, improves general well-being and raises productivity at work. As such, it's attracted a sometimes surprising following. Celebrities, yes, but also organisations as diverse as the US military, Google, the UK Home Office and even the prison system. And the government announced earlier this year that it wants to bring mindfulness into British classrooms. But as they learn the technique, school children and employees are unlikely to hear the word Buddhism, much less vipassana, which is the original Buddhist practice of mindfulness. It's essentially become a therapeutic tool, separated from its roots, and that new emphasis does have its detractors. I'm Jane Little, and in this edition of Things Unseen, I'll be exploring mindfulness with practitioners, including a critic of its increasing use in corporate America. First, let's start with Sharon Salzberg's definition of mindfulness. Mindfulness certainly means different things in different contexts. The way we tend to use it is a quality of awareness where our perception of what's happening in the moment isn't distorted. So maybe uh, we have the habit of projection. We have an uncomfortable physical sensation, uncomfortable emotion. And right away we start thinking, what's it going to feel like next week? What's it going to feel like in two weeks? What's it going to feel like next month? So not only are we having to deal with the actual difficulty right now, we've now added all of that anticipation as though we knew. You know, so that's a habit. And to really get closer to what's going on, we need to be with it, not it and all that anticipation. And so we recognize that's what our minds are doing. We practice letting go and coming back to the actual experience. So that's just one example of a way that a habit of mind may distort our experience. And so we learn to see those as they arise. We get much more in touch with what we're feeling, what we're wanting, what's going on within. And then mindfulness also provides a choice because if we're not completely lost in what's happening, nor are we fighting it or struggling against it, there's some space. And in that space, we have a choice. Do I want to send that email? Maybe I want to write it and not press send quite yet, something like that. Perhaps its moments arrive precisely because we're living in a very distracted culture with information overload. And many of us have real trouble figuring out which way to turn next in our multitasking lives. Well, it certainly seems to be our, the sign of our time. And the myth of multitasking is that we'll be more effective, we'll be more efficient, we'll get more done, and it'll be fine. And studies show, actually, it's not true. That's just a misunderstanding. We're not getting as much done, and we're not doing what we do as well as we need to do it. Plus, I would say, it's not so fulfilling a life. You know, if you're drinking a cup of tea and checking your email and you're on a conference call and you have the TV on silent and you're watching the crawl go by of the headlines, that's not a great cup of tea for anybody. And so 
taking the time to actually be fully with our experience leads to a lot more fulfillment. When many people think of mindfulness practice, they're probably thinking of that raisin that you (laughs) take between your thumb and your finger and you squeeze it and you feel it and you roll it around, then you pop it in your mouth and you roll it around your tongue and you taste it. Is that what we're talking about here? Yeah, kind of. (laughs) The famous raisin exercise. We can cut through some of the crazy momentum of our day by at least now and then actually savoring an experience, whatever it might be. And it's it's very interesting, actually, because it's like the simple pleasures or the ordinary experiences of life that we tend to dismiss are much more fulfilling. We feel much more connected. And that includes listening to somebody when they're speaking instead of thinking about the next 50 emails you need to send, actually being present. Anyone who's ever tried mindfulness meditation has probably discovered how easy it is to be distracted. Sharon gently encourages me to keep coming back. If your mind wanders, you get lost in thought, you fall asleep, don't worry about it. We say the most important moment in the whole process is the moment you realize you've been gone. You've already been distracted. Because that's the moment when we practice letting go and we practice beginning again. It's hard not to judge when I'm meditating. I think, oh, I was a real failure there because I started thinking about the central heating or what I have to do later. Is that common that people report feeling like failures and giving up? That is very common because we tend to bring our same old self-judgments right into the process of meditating. People say all the time, I failed at it because I couldn't stop thinking. I couldn't have only beautiful thoughts. I couldn't make my mind blank. I couldn't keep sleepiness at bay. And especially in terms of mindfulness meditation, the core understanding of mindfulness is that it doesn't matter what you're watching. What matters is how you're watching. So what's happening is really not the significant measure of how well you're doing. How you are with what's happening is the significant measure. So We think, of course, because we're so judgmental, it was a bad meditation because I got sleepy. Whereas one of my teachers, if you reported that to them, would immediately say, well, how were you with the sleepiness? Could you be aware of it? Could you be balanced with it? Did you have compassion for yourself even as the sleepiness was going on? Could you be interested in it? Like what are the layers of feeling in, in your body, in your mind that are sleepiness? That's what they're really concerned about is the relationship we have with everything. And so that's a revolutionary concept for us. It seems that mindfulness's moment has arrived. Would you agree? I would agree. And for me, of course, it's kind of startling. And I I came back from India where I'd gone to learn meditation in the early 70s. I came back in 1974. And it certainly was a different time. If you use the word mindfulness, nobody really quite knew what you were talking about at all. And now I think largely as a result of the research and the science that has become interested in in the process of meditation, mindfulness seems to be all the rage. It seems to have become so well established that we now have it written into U.S. Army manuals. They're using it on the battlefield and to overcome post-traumatic stress, for instance. They're using it in business, and we're seeing book titles such as Compassionate Management. Does that surprise you? It does surprise me. (laughs) Um... It's exciting and surprising. Of course, you know, at that point, one might mean all kinds of different things when you use the word compassion or or mindfulness. But I think it's, you know, got tremendous potential to 
help ease suffering in this world and, and help people connect to one another and themselves in a much more genuine way. In modern America, much of that suffering has to do with the stresses of the workplace. Americans are a hard-working people who often have little job security, and stress leads to absence from work and loss of profits for the company. Perhaps that's why large companies have adopted mindfulness for their employees. Google, Goldman Sachs, PricewaterhouseCooper among them. And one of the best-known celebrity advocates of mindfulness is Arianna Huffington. She's the founder and editor-in-chief of the Huffington Post and author recently of Thrive, a bestseller about redefining success and a clarion call to live more mindfully. I went to see her at the Huffington Post offices in Washington, D.C., where there's a meditation room just down the corridor from her desk. Isn't there a danger, I wondered, that mindfulness could become a mere management tool, a way of getting the most out of every employee? Yes, absolutely. I think it's kind of paradoxical to take the most important thing in life and put it at the service of something else. But I personally don't mind what motivation leads people to actually start this journey. You know, if their motivation is that they want to be more effective and more creative at work, fine. In the process, they are also going to discover for sure that they are more than their jobs. So some that may have begun in the service of their job will lead them to discovering that we are all more than our jobs. So it's benefiting everybody, basically. Yes. And, and the alternative is where we are now, which is an epidemic of depression, addiction, and um, trying to basically self-medicate. So even if people are not addicted to illegal drugs. They are all hooked on some kind of drug to deal with insomnia or anxiety. So clearly we're missing a big dimension of life and it's time we reintroduce it into our lives and whatever our entry point is, I would say just take it. But the way mindfulness has been harnessed by some large corporations does have its critics. Among them is Ron Purser, a professor of management at San Francisco State University and a long-time practitioner of Buddhism. I think there is a risk that uh, corporations may be attracted to mindfulness more as a palliative to help people cope or tolerate and manage these conditions that would otherwise be intolerable. In other words... Stress in, in many companies is a systemic issue. It's not just an individual or psychological issue. So as someone once said, it's tough to be mindful when you're treated as a cog in a machine. So you're basically saying that mindfulness techniques are being used as a tool to help companies make profits. Oh, absolutely. I, I think that's how they're sold. For example, Goldman Sachs uh, is one of the companies that is really promoting mindfulness A lot of the Wall Street traders have jumped on the bandwagon, hedge fund the managers, and they see it as a way of giving them an edge, upping their game. They actually compare themselves to like ninja warriors and samurai. Do you think that the versions that we're seeing in the West, the commodification of it, is a real danger or is a slightly impoverished version of your mindfulness, of the Buddhist-rooted mindfulness tradition, better than nothing at all? Well, I don't really see it as a danger, but I do see it as a path which may simply reinforce the basic uh, corporate interests which are, you know, rooted in greed. You know, corporations often endorse ambition, but that's really a polite word for greed, and the pursuit of market share is really a polite word for greed, maximization of profits uh, as well. So without any investigation into these values, we're losing an opportunity really to tap into the 
transformative power of mindfulness. We could go the route of laissez-faire mindfulness, which is basically only seeking you know, practical, material, and worldly benefits, or we could go the route more of social activism and the transformative power of mindfulness to actually be a critique of Western society, not just simply an accommodation to Western society. And how do you think it is best used in that latter context? How do you help the practitioner use it as a transformative tool to bring about social justice, for instance? Well, one aspect is that mindfulness is not all about being peaceful and calm. It's also about inquiry and investigation. It's also about asking questions about the sources of suffering. And a lot of times, the way mindfulness is portrayed is that the sources of suffering are seen as strictly contained within the self-contained individual. In other words, that stresses, and this is partly true, that stress is often our own personal reactivity to situations, and mindfulness does have a great therapeutic effect on teaching us how not to react to things. But a lot of that stress is, is not just our personal problem. It's actually part of the environment or part of our socioeconomic system. So one way we can begin to broaden the way we think about mindfulness is to uh, pursue the wisdom side of it, to pursue these uh, investigative uh, paths that we can begin to question the sources of suffering in our collective and social domains. Suffering is not just personal, it's also political, social, and environmental. Ariana Huffington, after I went into the offices at the Huffington Post in Washington and saw the meditation room and the yoga rooms and everything, I put it to her that wasn't this a nice way of squeezing lots of profits out of the staff. And, and she basically suggested to me that it was a win-win. And it wasn't just for that, but happy, de-stressed staff are better for the company. So it's basically a win-win for everybody. Well, that may be something that uh, is promoted in that way. But I find it, you know, sort of ironic that Ariana Huffington created a stress tracking app. It's called GPS for the Soul. It's a new app, but it's a new app to fight the distraction caused by the old apps. You know, what's paradoxical is uh, the corporate mindfulness programs that are most popular right now are in Silicon Valley. Those are the digital distraction industries. They're actually companies that manipulate attention to enhance revenues. Ron Purser. But for all that, says Sharon Salzberg, mindfulness techniques have been shown to have genuine and lasting benefits, even in high-stress environments such as maximum security prisons. I've gone in to prisons in New York State and California and Wisconsin, and what I've seen is that there is a, a tremendous difference. There's much less violence subsequent to the retreats that happen in prison. There's much more understanding. and. You know, I've been to both relatively short-term prisons and much longer-term prisons, and for people in a shorter-term prison, then it's about being able to make a life once you're released, as well as getting through the time there. And, of course, for people who are there for long, long, long sentences, it's about making a life there. That's a better life. Many years ago, I went to this prison in California, and it was a women's prison, and one of the women said to me, there's nothing easier when you're in prison than getting lost in the past or in the future. You can think endlessly about the past and what you did and what transpired and why you did it, and you can think endlessly about a future that may be a long time in coming. And she said, I don't want to do that. She said, I want to live in the present moment. And then she said to me, I choose life. I choose to be alive. And I was just stunned because the place in which she was choosing life to be where it was not that easy by any means and yet 
it was so inspiring that that she had that kind of motivation even in that circumstance now what about cultivating happiness at work that's your latest book happiness at work and a lot of your tradition comes out of buddhism but a lot of buddhists say well it's it's not about happiness because actually that's attachment and we shouldn't really be trying to cultivate happiness so where do you get that title from well it's also based a little bit on an earlier book i wrote which was called real happiness the power of meditation a 28-day program and the publisher came up with real happiness and i was quite torn because on the one hand i thought that's what we actually want We want a quality within that's sustainable or renewable, that isn't going to be so based on circumstance, that isn't going to shatter when we're disappointed, when, you know, we're impatient because we want things to happen faster. We can access something. And on the other hand, I thought, this is really going to get me into trouble because people so often associate happiness with just pleasure or endlessly seeking pleasure or being conflict avoidant or something very superficial, almost silly, and and I didn't mean that at all. And so even though I had some resistance at first to the title, I kind of enjoyed it by the end because I thought it's kind of interesting to take a word and try to give it a different meaning and different sensibility. And what do you mean by happiness? I mean a sense of inner sufficiency or even inner abundance. It's about connection. It's connecting to something within ourselves, and it's also connecting to a bigger picture. Like many years ago, I went to Walter Reed Army Hospital to teach, and uh, I had a friend who was a nurse there, and she arranged for me to have a tour, a short tour of one of the wards. And it was really grueling, even to be there such a short period of time. was so intense. And at the end of the tour, she turned to me, my friend, and she said, The nurses who can stay here are not the ones who get lost in sorrow. The nurses who can stay here are the ones who can connect to the resiliency of the human spirit. And the moment she said that, I thought, oh, that is so true. That's what we mean by compassion. That's what we mean by happiness. Not being giddy, you know, but being able to connect to something bigger because it's not selfish, it's not being self-absorbed, it's not like endlessly seeking pleasure. It actually is the very thing that gives us the strength to be generous and to care and to go on in a very difficult circumstance. Speaking of which, in developing resilience or resiliency, your own story suggests that your early childhood played a part in that. Your father left when you were four, mm-hmm. right, and your mother died when you were nine. What part did that play in, in your story in terms of moving towards meditation and this teaching? Well, it played a, a huge part in that story. I went to college when I was 16, and I left for India when I was 18, specifically to learn how to meditate because I was very troubled. I was deeply unhappy somehow through this Asian philosophy course that I took at the university, I just had an inkling that if I could learn how to meditate, that would really help me. So I went off to India and uh, learned how to meditate. And it did, of course, really, really help me. And so I look back at that time and I realized, you know, as traumatic as it was, it actually was pretty crucial. You've also written that that early childhood experience where you grew up in different households taught you about impermanence. Yes, I think that having the loss of a parent at a young age, having the experience of a lot of change, a lot of disruption, 
can really give us a kind of strength. It's like, you know the secret no one else wants to talk about. And really a great deal of society is built around the idea of let's avoid that and let's avoid that and let's shun those people because they're having a hard time and let's be ashamed of ourselves when we're having a hard time. And so it was an enormous thing for me to come into a context like the Buddhist teaching where they just say openly, yeah, suffering is a part of life. We're all vulnerable. This is a part of what happens. How much of what you teach is actually just pure Buddhism? I like to think it's all pure Buddhism. (laughs) Somebody once said to me, wow, this is incredible stuff. Like, when did you make it up? And I said, well, actually, I didn't make it up at all. It came right out of the Buddhist teaching. And the same person, actually, in the same retreat said to me later on, is it fair to say that Western Buddhism has nothing to do with Asian Buddhism? And I said, I hope not. (laughs) But it does seem to have a broad appeal here. Mindfulness seems to have a broad appeal. And it would seem to me that a large part of that is because it's promoted as a secular tool. It's not about religion. It's not necessarily even about spirituality. I think that's very true. It's also fair to say that Buddhism isn't necessarily about religion. You know, so my first retreat, my introduction to meditation was in India. And the first night of that first retreat, the teacher said the Buddha did not teach Buddhism. The Buddha taught a way of life. And so that's always been my orientation. That's always been my conviction. Would you call yourself a Buddhist, though? Sometimes I do and sometimes I don't. It depends on the context. I have nothing else to call myself, really. So if it feels right, I do. But... I can understand. First of all, there are people of many other faith traditions who come to practice mindfulness meditation, and they're not at all interested in the approach of the Buddhist teaching, and that's fine, because the most important thing is the method. And then there are other people who actually appreciate the fact I didn't make it up, (laughs) and that people have been practicing this for thousands of years. Some people might say mindfulness as a tool emptied of its spiritual roots is somehow losing some of its power. What would you say to that? Well, it's certainly changing context. And so it depends. I mean, the great power, the tremendous, tremendous positive part of secularization is the widespread interest. People in all kinds of situations who would not at all be interested in something labeled Buddhist are to their benefit and the benefit of their families and the benefit of their communities actually using this method, which I think is great. My concern is mindfulness as traditionally taught is embedded in a basis of ethics. You actually start with looking at your life. And this isn't preachy or moralistic. It's really with the understanding that the way we live is going to affect our meditation. So It's going to be awfully hard, not necessarily impossible, but awfully hard to tell lies at work all week long and then sit down on Saturday morning to seek the truth. You're going to sit there very likely and think, you know, did I lie enough? Did I lie to the right people? Maybe I have to tell another lie. And there's not going to be a lot of tranquility. So it's almost like an invitation for once to do something in the easiest way possible rather than in the hardest way possible. So that means beginning by looking at your life. That's not commonly done in secular mindfulness settings. 
Does mindfulness promote creativity or delete it somewhat because it it dampens down those extreme moments or the you know those aha moments that might come when one's thoughts are scattered? I think mindfulness increases creativity. It's certainly been my experience that if I'm writing, for example, and I'm really stuck, if I sit down to try to think through where I'm stuck, it doesn't work. I've been trying that for about six years. <laughs> but if I just sit and I meditate, same old way I would any other day, very often the answer will come. It just comes because I've created more space. So I think it can tremendously increase creativity. It's so counterintuitive that in the West, especially in America where it's such a consumer-driven, cash-rich, time-poor society and you've got to be doing, doing, doing. The idea for a lot of people of taking 20 minutes out of the day to sit still and do nothing yeah. is, or has been in the past, quite absurd. Yeah, it is ridiculous <laughs> in a lot of ways, but it's also absurd for many of us to think about taking time for ourselves. It's not just doing nothing, but it's not getting things done for others. And yet we really do need to look at that quality of resiliency and, and burnout and exhaustion. And I think it's ironic that if we said to almost anybody, here's this thing you can do 20 minutes a day, it'll really help your friend, we do it. But the idea of it really helping us, suddenly, oh, that's selfish, that's self-centered, I don't know if I can do it. But in the end, we have to do it. We have to do something because we can't always be the one we're leaving out because we will burn out. So I guess the message is to sit down, tune in and wake up. I was talking to Sharon Salzberg about the benefits of mindfulness meditation. Earlier, you also heard from Arianna Huffington and Ron Purser. I'm Jane Little, and you've been listening to Things Unseen, the programme for people who feel there's more to life than the material world. Things Unseen was brought to you by CTVC. And you can hear this programme again and find other editions of Things Unseen at www.thingsunseen.co.uk.